You're listening to the first of two special hour-long I'm Ready for My Close-Ups, looking at this year's BFI London Film Festival. I'm Alex Fitch, and later in the show I'll be discussing a dozen films that have already screened or have yet to screen at the film festival with cartoonist Mark Stafford, who, like myself, is a regular contributor to Electric Sheep magazine, an online periodical about cult and world cinema. Films we're discussing include the Ralph Steadman documentary, For No Good Reason, Brandon Cronenberg's Antiviral, new documentary Room 237 about conspiracy theories in The Shining, Beasts of the Southern Wild, Sally Potter's new film Ginger and Rosa, Bill Murray playing FDR in Hyde Park on Hudson, Tim Burton's Frankenweenie, Monty Python animated reunion film A Liar's Autobiography, and many more. Before that, I'm talking to Richard Bates Jr. about his new teen body horror movie, Excision. It's a film that's not showing at the London Film Festival, but will be screening as part of the all-night Halloween Fright Fest that stars Tracy Lords, John Waters, and Malcolm McDowell. Before that, here's a word from our sponsors. Resonance FM is London's only non-profit community radio art station who need your donations to help keep the station and podcasts on air. All the programme makers and all the engineers all work for free to bring you shows as diverse as The Bike Show, The Free University of the Airways, Hooting Yard, Speakers Resonance Corner, FM accepts donations in the form of cheques, credit and debit cards, bank transfers, PayPal and cash. Go to www.resonancefm.com for more details. We also accept hobnobs and tea bags. Your donation means our continued existence. In Britain, we're just about to see Excision. It's getting a premiere at a Halloween all-nighter and then coming out on DVD. It started off as a short film and then you remade it as a feature. Was it that you showed it to people that were impressed and you got backing to expand it? Well, I mean, that would have been ideal. But now, it didn't, it didn't happen like that. So I, I made the short in the senior at a school at New York University, and I made the short film excision my senior year, and uh, it, it, it actually was something of a festival hit. Like, it played at 50 festivals, and it won 24 awards, and all this stuff. So I I got all these meetings, because I had intended for it to be a feature, and I had actually been, you know, writing the feature as I was going to the festivals. And I got to come out to Hollywood, and um, I had all these meetings, you know, with companies interested in possibly doing the feature. And so I took all the meetings and they all said, no way, no, they're going to make it. Uh, like literally everyone said, this script is insane. No one would ever see this movie. Uh, it's fucking nuts. And uh, so for four, God, I guess for four years, I just TA'd around a bunch and tried to get the movie made. And when I realized that no one was going to help me, I actually raised the money myself. It took a few years. I'd say the movie's financed by 30 of my best friends uh, wow. from back home in Virginia and from school in New York. Uh, but we all just made the movie ourselves completely independently of any studio or anything like that. Mm. And um, and then uh, Sunday after accepted it and we sold it at Sundance. Mm. But presumably, even for a, a low-budget, self-funded film, you got an amazing cast together. So I guess they must have been impressed by both the short and the script for the feature. Uh, yeah, I mean, they were all really cool, you know what I mean? Like, I, I've never done a feature before, and they, they were really excited about it. I think, I think a lot of these actors don't get cast 
very interesting material. Mm. Uh, you know what I mean? It's, it becomes kind of weird, especially in the studio system out here. So I think that they're very excited when they can go out on a limb and do something a little bit more interesting. So in this case, you know, they, none of them did it for the money because we didn't have any. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, it was really sort of a labor of love for all of us. Mm. And um, and I'm glad they liked it. You know, you never know. At a certain point, I've been told that, you know, the script, no one would watch enough. I was so excited, you know, when the cast responded to it. So, well, you know, and saw, I guess, mm. the beauty in it or, you know, whatever you want to say. Mm. Well, what I thought was interesting is that as well as it being a really great character study of the lead actress, it's really beautifully shot. Both things seem to be the opposite of what you expect from modern horror films, which are normally quite grimy and gritty and really only focus on the murders rather than the reasons why someone might become a killer. Yeah, my, my, my one note, actually, before we did anything to my DP was that it had to look like a Disney children's show. Okay. And that's what we were going for. So something, you know, that would be on the Disney channel Saturday morning. Because, yeah, when you make it gritty and grimy and you sort of, the audience becomes very sort of comfortable, you know, that they're in a horror movie. But when you don't give them that and things are happening in a place you know, in a space where things aren't supposed to be happening, mm. uh, it becomes much more uncomfortable, I think. Mm. And jarring, because everyone's so acclimated to, uh, this is, you know, a horrific uh, horror movie is supposed to be dark and grungy and dirty, you know what I mean? And there's a safety in that. There's a feeling of, oh, I'm in a horror film. Uh, but when you sort of pull back that veneer, I think, you know, it opens up a lot of room for more sort of psychological... Mm. You feature John Waters in the movie in a cameo as a priest and I wonder if his films were an influence on you because you seem to be exploring the same kind of grotesqueries in suburban America Oh yeah, totally huge influence In fact, the, the whole film is really sort of a love letter to all the movies that you know, got me through growing up You know, I, I cast many of my influences uh, as I could, but uh, John, amongst you know many other filmmakers, being from Sweden, he he was the coolest. I I grew up actually right outside Baltimore in Virginia. I used to have um, my dad and I had baseball tickets in Baltimore, so we were in Baltimore for quite a bit on the weekends. And that's what John does all of his uh, filming. Mm. So John was always sort of a hero of mine, and um, and I sent him the script. Actually, Tracy. Tracy introduced me to John. She was a big fan. And uh, I sent him the script and asked him if he'd be interested in playing the priest. And I got a call back from him. And he said, uh, he said, well, Ricky, uh, i got to tell you, this is a very strange script. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I, my heart sank. I was like, no, he's not going to do it. And he goes, well, listen, I, uh, I don't fly coach, and I'm not shaving my mustache, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> And then, uh, and that was it. And then he just pulled it out and he did it. And uh, he's a cool dude ever. It looks like I think he's actually going to be in my new movie now, too. So, mm. hopefully. Cool. But, uh, yeah, like, my whole, ca- my whole casting, I mean, my whole crew was just to make my friends, you know? Like, we couldn't afford uh, a real crew. So no one, you know, I was showing people how to set up seat stands and stuff. No one knew how to do anything. Mm. Um, so I just, you know, I had my friend pick up John Waters from the airport. We got John completely fucking lost. <laughs> And, you know, 
we almost didn't get to shoot John because John was stuck in a car with, with my friend Alex. My, I remember my friend uh, finally got John to set, and by this point, John was a little pissed. He'd been you know, <laughs> off an airplane and off in the car in Los Angeles for a while, and he was, Ricky, uh, your friend Alex, he's, uh, he's cute as a button, but he's dumb as a bag full of hammers. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, you said that you didn't know how to do anything. Presumably, something like the the gallons of blood that you used in the movie was it a, a standard issue movie blood, or did you actually come up with a particular mixture that that worked for you? Uh, we made the, we couldn't afford you know the standard the, the pre made movie blood man. It's so expensive. I actually I used to make money in college doing um, horror FX on okay. kids movies. Mm. I have a fairly good background in it, and I and I got two kids. We actually worked with Clive Barker and uh, really good kids, um, and they did the, the FX stuff, mm. um, the gore stuff. But yeah, we made our own blood. Um, every we made all those sets for the dream sequences in my friend's garage. Mm. Uh, Jeremy Sumter's dad, one of the actors in Death Destruction guy, and he helped us out. I mean, we uh, you would have no idea how sort of ghetto this whole production was. We. We completely did, did it ourselves. So. With the casting, I mean, you mentioned Tracy Lords and both her role and the one played by Anna Lynn are very different to things they've done in the past. With Anna Lynn, you've actually made her really ugly in the movie, which is at odds to the very glamorous part she's played in the past. And with Tracy Lords, she's been quite marginalised at times in her career, even though she's a great actress. And with this, you really gave her something to get her teeth into. Yeah, well, that was good. Tracy was actually the first person I cast in the entire movie mm. um, because because of that fact. And I feel like, you know, when you're making your first film, I felt like I had everything to prove, and um, and I felt like so did Tracy, and, and we were in the same boat, you know? And, uh, and she, I actually auditioned Tracy, and she was, like, she was fantastic. And, uh, you know, she only gets these parts that are sort of, you know, hinting at her past and pornography and all this bullshit, but she really is a good actress. And so the idea was, and it was my thinking with Anna Lynn as well, you know, you guys, uh, after I met him, I said, I know you've got the chops, and, um, and I'm willing to take a chance on you if you're willing to take a chance on me. So I cast against type specifically. Uh, with a lot of the, a lot of the characters. Mm. Where did the initial idea come from? Because if you were to describe the plot to someone, I guess it's kind of like a cross between we need to talk about Kevin and Frankenstein. Yeah, you know, it really, it really stemmed from uh, being like a love letter to the films I grew up with, like the John Hughes mm. comedies and Heather's and all those films combined mm. with horror films, because you really with like eighties teen movies. And, uh, you know, David Cronenberg, uh, Dario Argento, Claude mm. Solon specifically. I mean, the film is very much a satire about where I grew up in Virginia. Mm. Um, so it is, it is sort of a mishmash um, of the two. Uh, the idea was that it was supposed to be the most twisted John Hughes movie <laughs> ever imaginable, mm. I guess. It's funny that you mentioned David Cronenberg because I've been waiting for uh, Malcolm McDowell to be, to do a good movie in years and then he does yours and then he does the debut film of David Cronenberg's son which is another body horror movie. So obviously there's something in the zeitgeist at the moment. 
I I really want to see Antiviral. I think it's kind of awesome. So uh, you know, and that poor kid that, that directed it, Chloe Grace, fun. You know, it's uh, it's tough to be his son and make a horror movie. Like you know, once he's got some balls because the backlash that just inevitably you know how people are. They just you know, it, I I uh, I'm excited to see it, and I, it's gutsy that he you know did what he did. Uh, McDowell, yeah, I love him. He I've never, you know, the dude does so many projects now. <laughs> like, I, you look him up, you know, he's probably got, you know, like, what, like 15 things coming out. You know, I, you know, I don't know. I think he's, I don't want to say underutilized. Uh, I, I think that perhaps, um, I, you know, I wish because I'm such a fan of his that he, you know, he, he was a bit more discerning. <laughs> but, you know, what you, you know, who the hell am I to, to, to say anything, you know? I was so excited to get Ray Wise, actually, because mm. I'm such a Twin Peaks fan. Mm. Um, and then my friend, Matthew Gray Googler, I don't know if you noticed him, he's like the, the sex ed teacher. He's only in two teams, but he's actually starring in my new one. Okay. Uh, he's a friend of mine from college. And, you know, Marley Matt, you know, I, all these all these actors that had oh, everything to lose and, and nothing necessarily to gain from working with a first-time filmmaker, uh, but they, they did it. And Roger Bart, I mean, the guys that made Ariel Winner, the girl, you know, from Modern Family, everyone told her not to do this. I mean, there were people <laughs> fighting her and her mother to not do this film. Wow. And they're actually from Virginia where I grew up, and they fought very, very hard to do this project. Mm. And actually, it ended up changing representation afterwards. Mm. Uh, they are, you know, this was, this we all became, just, you know, one sort of crazy little family. Mm. You mentioned Hughes's movies of those kind of like 1980s comedies. But thinking about a representation of the dark side, of the underbelly, of suburbia, were there any kind of autobiographical influences, you know, even just maybe bullying at high school that influenced this? Oh, oh dude, totally, totally. So... Let's see, even the smallest things, like, uh, you know how she gets cold sores? Like, I always got cold sores growing up. Hmm. Literally, one of my parents kissed me when I was a baby. <laughs> so, I've had cold sores since preschool, which is pretty fucking hilarious if you think about it. I didn't even get to, like, earn it in some sort of, like, wild sex romp with babes in college. Like, I just started off with herpes on my face. Fucking <laughs> sucks. Uh, I had to go to Katerian classes. Um, you know, otherwise I would be grounded. I, I remember I wasn't allowed to rent movies, actually, if I didn't go to Katilia class, huh. uh, which is that dance thing, sort of, it's it's like a Southern thing in the United States, mm. like etiquette classes. Okay. Um, the period blood sex scene, I, I myself have had a face full of period blood. I, that mirror scene is completely based on a freshman year of college, actually, I remember walking in the bathroom um, and uh, and having that exact same freak-out moment that Jeremy has. Wow. So, um, I mean, there's constant little things, you know? And also part of Pauline, you know, she says things and has, you know, I guess the balls that maybe I wish I had, mm. you know, to, to enemies when I was in high school. I mean, obviously she's, you know, a sociopath and everything, and mm. she goes sort of over the edge at the end, but I think there is also, uh, you know, everyone everyone feels oppressed at the end of the day. There's no one out there who feels like everything's going their way, no matter what position they're in. So everyone can sort of identify, you know, with Pauline in that she's just the underdog, and I think 
the sort of boldness. People appreciate that because people wish, you know, in a lot of instances that they were that way, mm. I think. And was that at all cathartic, turning perhaps experiences that weren't um, all that pleasant at the time into the basis of a horror movie? Well, you know, honestly, man, it's better to laugh than cry. So <laughs> I've, I've, I've developed a really dark sort of self-deprecating sense of humor over the years, and it's been very sort of helpful. You know, I, I wouldn't trade any past experiences for the world. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's certainly my way of... of uh, commenting on things without being preachy mm. or too in your face about anything. I, you know, I really try not to do that. Um, so, you know, hopefully, hopefully it works. Hopefully there's, there's something to it. And I mean, really the film is about, you know, parents loving their children no matter what. I mean, that, that it ends where it ends because, yeah. you know, it's the first time Pauline has this moment of clarity because her mother is her and embraced her despite what she's done. The mother sort of had this moment where she realizes, you know, that she let she she was a part of this. She let it go too far too, mm. and um, that's sort of why it ends where it ends because that's that's the end of the story. It's the first time she touches her actually without slapping her. Mm. So, what's the the new film that you're working on? Uh, it's um, it's actually imagine if the dude that made Excision made his version of Ghostbusters. <laughs> okay, fantastic. It's a crazy, crazy fucking Ghostbusters movie um, set with a background of uh, Sherman's march to the sea during the Civil War, the uh, American Civil War. Great, cool. Well, I look forward to seeing that too. Yeah. Blend of comedy and horror. Um, mm. There's all sorts of nutty shit in this one, man. Trust me. Well, if you like excision, mm. I think you'll. It's a little bit more commercial, but you know, I say that. I say that confident that that I won't be criticized for selling out. Plan, <laughs> Jesus! I, I'm not getting enough money to sell out. So. <laughs> Indeed. Cool. Well, I mean, I, I really enjoyed excision, and it's been great talking to you. Excision is showing as part of the Fright First Halloween All Nighter on Saturday, October the 27th at View West End in Leicester Square and is released on DVD and Blu ray on the 12th of November. One of the films that came up in discussion with Richard Bates is the son of David Cronenberg, Brandon's debut movie Antiviral, and that's one of a dozen films I'll be discussing next with cartoonist and film critic Mark Stafford. Out of the films you've seen so far, was there any that particularly struck you as a definite must-see? Well, being a cartoonist, obviously, for no good reason, is fantastic. Sorry, that being the title of documentary about Ralph Steadman. Mm. Fantastic. Uh, well, Johnny Depp goes to visit Ralph Steadman in his house, and, I mean, the main reason I love it is there's good 20-minute sequence where you just see Ralph Steadman drawing, and you see mm. his method, you see what he uses, the materials he uses, and, um, and how it goes about creating an image. It also sets him up within... He uses the you know, gonzo experiences he had mm. with Hunter S. Thompson as a kind of framing device to get you through what has been a life of just doing lots of illustration, which would otherwise be kind of seem kind of shapeless. And it's partly magnificent because Ralph Stebner is a magnificent man. Mm. Um, he's self-depreciating, funny. He knows exactly where his status is in the in the you know 
grand scheme of things and his little speech at the end where he says you know i'm worried i've produced too much stuff <laughs> i'm worried i've become a visual polluter and you know i'm i don't think i've proved i'm an artist yet made me like mm. you know just coil back in my seat and think oh man if this guy doesn't know <laughs> <laughs> plus you know next year we're going to be doing a ross Edmund show here at the cartoon museum so uh, you know <laughs> it kind of got me up to speed on exactly where his command's coming from yeah. it's a fantastic piece of work yeah, I only know Stedman through his work. I mean, what's he like as a human being? What kind of crazy experiences has he had? <laughs> I mean, hanging around with Hunter S. Thompson, you know, I think about the second time he met Hunter S. Thompson, uh, Thompson maced him. <laughs> uh, there's this well-worn story of when they went out to the, I think it was the America's Cup on some island, you know, the yacht race, and they rode out in a tiny little boat and he was going to spray... Um, an obscenity about the Pope underneath the waterline of one of the boats so that on the TV coverage the next day the, it would rise up and suddenly... Brilliant. This, um, fortunately, they didn't reckon with the uh, spray can, with the mm. sh- if you shake it, the little thing in it rattles and somebody on the uh, boat went, hey, what are you doing there? Uh, at which point Hunter S. Thompson let off a couple of flare pistols <laughs> in the attempt to escape. <laughs> um, there's stuff like that, yeah. It's great stuff. But he's met a lot of people. I mean, there's a there's a little interlude where he's met uh, William Burroughs and lots of interesting. You know, you've got Richard E. Grant pops up as a demonstration of how he did paranoids, which was um, his using a Polaroid, mm. take a photo, and while the emulsion is still warm, you can actually move the surface of it with like a blunt pencil. And he did this entire book of kind of instant caricatures um, some of which are fantastic you know but um, it covers a lot of them you know all the events in a very productive and amazing to my mind life you know which provides a great segue (laughs) talking of Polaroid images that have been manipulated to make caricatures a film that we both saw was David Cronenberg's son's debut movie, mm. Antiviral, yeah. which has a weird thing in it. It's to, to, to set the scene, it's a film set in the future where humanity's obsession with celebrity culture has got to the stage where people want to be infected with the same viruses and diseases that celebrities have. And a company that manufactures these viruses for people to take themselves um, have a security lock on the viruses which look like a strange deformed photo of people yeah. that was one aspect of it I just didn't kind of well, understand at all that didn't come to I mean it was a nice thing because it's it was a, nice it visual, was a touch. visual touch yeah. but it made you think what? <laughs> but um, yeah I mean yeah, clearly in the Cronenberg family the apple does not fall far from no, the tree no. <laughs> um, you have sinister uh, kind of corporations and political intrigue and loads of great perverse I did. I mean, there's a. There's, you can buy. You can buy celebrity meat in butchers, where mm. you know, like Clone culture from. formed meat of your favourite um, non-entity can be consumed. <laughs> um, it takes a while to get going. I don't know. It was a bit cold and messy and all over the place. It's got a hero. Well, a kind of blank hero who you mm. never really find out that much about. He's got an incredible looking guy. Yeah, he's, he's got kind of, amazing... He reminded me of uh, Bern Gorman from Torchwood. Oh, yeah. yeah oh, but, but Ginger. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when it gets going, it, it mm. is fantastic stuff. Yeah. And just the perverse ideas keep coming and coming and coming. Um, uh, nice little appearance by Malcolm McDowell. Mm. As a doctor. But all the performances are spot on. It's got that great kind of gleaming white clinical surface thing mm. while absolutely disgusting deeds are being done. Yeah. Um, there seems to be very much a, a Canadian aesthetic when it comes to kind of 
strange fetishes and things on film, whether it's, you know, Cronenberg's, uh, Cronenberg Senior or, um, oh, who's the guy who directed um, No and uh, The Confessional? Uh, Robert Lepage and you know I mean it really does seem uh, a very Canadian thing this sort of strange attitude to to sexuality and perversity it's always shown in a very clinical way that's always very kind of cool but there's that strange oddity you know kind of like that seems to be in their zeitgeist (laughs) there's always that American thing that our Canadians are boring and I keep looking at the list and going Leonard Cohen David Cronenberg Neil Young what the hell have I just seen these are fantastic people um yeah, definitely well worth checking out. It's oh, got I agree. its own great kind of throbby soundtrack as well, and a great kind of. Uh, it's more. It's, it's a bit more intimate than his dad, I think. Mm. I think that's the only sliver you can see so far. But we're judging on one yes. film. But I, I imagine you know, based on you know, we both loved it, and uh, there's been a lot of buzz around it. I mean, not only because it's Cronenberg's son, but because mm. it's a good movie. So I imagine this probably will get yeah. released at, at some point in the near future because it really feels like he's taken up where his dad left off. Uh, when mm. David starts to go mainstream from Crash onwards, this kind of continues the this, indie yeah, aesthetic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it kind of fits into kind of up to around Scanners, Broods kind of mm. period, David Cronenberg, where it's essentially a small thriller. And it's a bit more... It doesn't have the kind of pulp pacing that his dad's stuff had. If mm. you think of something like Scanners, it actually moved like a mainstream thriller. And, it, you know, he came out of an exploitation tradition. And it's not clearly it's coming out more out of an art housey, mm. you know, a different because that exploitation industry doesn't really mm. exist anymore. So it's a bit more considered uh, than some of those early films. And actually, one film it reminded me of uh, was The Human Centipede, which is a. Ter- I mean, you know, Antiviral is a good film, and The Human Centipede is a terrible movie. But the thing that uh, that they had in common, at least for me, was just the central idea is so unpleasant that it lodges in your brain before you even see it. And even though the depiction mm. of the horror isn't actually graphic in either movie, just the central idea I find is just so repellent <laughs> yes. that you kind of sit there sweating in your seat while you're watching it. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Pretty much, and yeah, it's a film of evil ideas that slowly mm. creep up on you all the way through. And there's, you know, there are more in there than we've discussed mm. at this particular point. Indeed, it, it does keep them coming. Mm. And you know, great work. Uh, another kind of tangential, creepy horror movie conspiracy theory thing that you saw that I haven't um, was Room Two Three Seven. Yeah, I really like this. Um, I don't know, I don't know how many other people are really going to like this because it basically ticked my butt. And it's essentially the filmmakers have found about five, I think, different people. You never see them; they're just mm. uh, talking. Well, they're, they're voices, um, and they all saw Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. And all became slowly obsessed by it and watched it loads and loads of times. And all of them have read into it different theories. So one of them says that it's a film about um, uh, manifest destiny and the genocide of the American, you know, Native American population. Mm. There's another one who says it's, oh, no, 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 it's all about the Holocaust. And there's one magnificent uh, moment where somebody says, no, The Shining is Stanley Kubrick essentially apologising for his part in faking the Apollo 11 moon landings. <laughs> All of whom read this into a film because of things like the posters in the background, just, you know, uh, continuity errors are suddenly revealed to have sudden, you know, amazing 
well, almost because we couldn't possibly accept that there might be a continuity no, error no, no, in a Kubrick this, movie because he's such a perfectionist. This is the point. Because mm. Stanley Kubrick is well known to be obsessive and perfectionist and do all this you know, insane amount of research, which he did on The Shining as well. Apparently he had about three people almost working at a hotel for about three months just mm. to get the kind of gist of it. Because he's known for that, people just can't accept that... Uh, He's flubbed in some, you know, area. So there's a scene in it where, you know, Danny, the kid, is playing on the floor of a corridor mm. and the, car- the carpet pattern faces in one direction. So it's got this kind of symbol which is open in mm. one direction and a croquet ball rolls towards him. Mm. And then he stands up, but the, rea- the other action shot, it's now the symbol is round the other way. It's the other uh. bit. And, and of course he stands up and he's wearing a jumper which knitted into which is Apollo 11. Ah, yeah, see, the spaceship. So <laughs> this obviously means something deeply wrong. Um, it's mean, fantastic. I mean, this is all illustrated, but you just get clips and clips and clips of The Shining on screen, but they've digitally uh, drawn stuff over the top of it and pointed big arrows pointing to the brilliant. painting in the background of the buffalo, which maintains some kind of significance. Um, and all of other Stanley Kubrick's films are kind of stuck in there as a... Mm. Uh, in a kind of Adam Curtis kind of style fashion mm. to comment on uh, what the person's talking about, but also at random, a whole bunch of other movies uh, like the you know the brain from Planet Eris turns up, load of stuff from Lombardo Berva's Demons just because I think it's got oh, lots cool. of sequences of people walking into a cinema, <laughs> um, uh, loads of bits of stuff that I've never seen before. Where there's a scene I've never seen in Eyes Wide Shut with Tom Cruise mm. walking down the street. And he looks at a poster of The Shining and walks inside. And the corridor he walks down inside is actually the, the stairs in the Prince Charles cinema. No. Yeah, it's <laughs> really odd. And I've never seen this before and I don't remember it being in the film. So I guess yeah. it's from the cutting room floor. Interesting. Because there's not much... You don't get you know a blooper reel on most no, Stanley Kubrick films. I'm astonished they, if that is yeah. cut, a cut scene where yeah. they got it from. You know? Essentially, <laughs> it's, an, you know, it's an obsessive film about film obsessives. Um, mm. I mean, is any comparison made with the fact that The Shining is about a film who uh, is about a man who's slowly having a mental breakdown, and it's suggesting that watching this <laughs> film has caused other people to have a mental breakdown? <laughs> I think it's there to be picked up. Um, it's fantastically odd, odd. Stuff, mm. um, and it, uh, I, it's been a while since I last saw The Shining. Is Room Two Three Seven a significant room oh, in yeah, yeah, yeah. the, the room, hotel? Room Two Three Seven is the uh, the room bad stuff has happened in. So there's one st- uh, Jack wrong. Nicholson walks into, and uh, there's the the woman in the bath. I'll, I shall mention this far and mm. no farther. That's the significance of that particular okay. thing. Yeah. It does make you want to go and see The Shining again, which is getting a re-release, well, handily enough. How apt, yes. Uh, room 237 is screening in Art House Cinemas from the last Friday of October, alongside the UK release of the American cut of The Shining, which mm. is being shown in UK cinemas for the first time. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I had no idea. Next, we'll be talking about Beasts of the Southern Wild, a new magical realist Louisiana-set fantasy film that goes on wide release in cinemas later this month. To give you a taste of the movie, here's an extract from the lush soundtrack by Dan Romer and Ben Zaitlin. This is an extract from the overture of the movie entitled Once There Was a Hush Puppy.
another fantastical film that's coming out later this month that we both saw at the film festival was Beasts, Beasts of the Southern Wild, mm. which I enjoyed to a certain extent, uh, far more than you did. <laughs> <laughs> um, I kind of admire it. It, it. What it does really well, it's, it's, a, it's a strange kind of family. You're inside the head, essentially, of about a six-year-old girl. It's got this amazing kind of novelistic feel where it's freeform and it kind of follows a little girl's logic of the world. Mm. Where a hurricane is clearly happening in the bayou. I'm not entirely sure where it's at. Um, yeah, it's some, basically on the wrong side of the levees near yeah, New Orleans. The old you know. I've no idea yeah, where yeah. it's um, But some kind of apocalypse is happening. The town she lives in, bathtub, is uh, immediately swallowed up with water. She's stuck there with her dad, who is clearly uh, not well. No. Either mentally or physically. Yeah. And uh, meanwhile, she has this obsession. And meanwhile, are the the aurochs, mm. the, the huge prehistoric, prehistoric warthog yeah. kind of things, <laughs> are being defrosted from um, icebergs and slowly finding their way out to well, get her. You kind of mm. assume, yeah. Um, presumably, some kind of metaphor for yes. civilization wanting to come and get these people and rehabilitate them, or you know, yeah. the the death of her father yeah. that is imminent. I mean, it seems to be kind of a trope, actually, in modern children's fiction, the idea of uh, approaching adulthood and responsibility being compared with something monstrous. There was a book mm. that came out earlier this year, um, and the name has obviously completely escaped me, about a boy whose mother is dying of cancer, and he starts talking to the monstrous tree in his back garden, oh, yeah. um, which, which, is, which is excellent. Mm. And actually, the first time we spoke about this film, I said it's like a cross between Treme and Razorback, because <laughs> it combines both of the plots of those things. It's, I think the reason a lot of people, or me, myself included, might find it... I mean, I didn't absolutely loathe and detest mm. it, but I, I, I did find myself unmoved by it I wasn't mm. taken up by it uh, it has that kind of American kind of lo-fi determinedly raggedy looking mm. but at the same time they clearly slick. Yeah, tons and tons yeah. and tons of money making these incredible looking shacks these incredible looking beasts whatever needs to be in the film is that is clearly that um, it's got a great kind of look of blasted old kind of paint and mm. rotting wood and uh, crawdads and yeah, yeah, catfish yeah, yeah. and you know this, never has absolute squalor been so beautifully <laughs> captured on film <laughs> um, I mean it's probably a bad thing to refer to another review but uh, the sight and sound mentioned it looks like a long form arcade <laughs> fire <laughs> which unfortunately that kind of rang in my head all the mm. way through it's got this kind of heart on its sleeve kind of earnestness about it and mm. it's, it's I should like this film mm. more than I did. For some reason, it just kind of rubbed me up the wrong way. You know? Well, I mean, that's the thing. I really wanted to like it more than I actually did because I thought it was beautifully shot, really nicely acted, mm. terrific music score. But I literally couldn't watch some of the movie because I just can't watch films that are sh uh, shot on shaky cameras. And so... Mm. I had to keep shutting my eyes about every five minutes for 30 seconds because that gave me a splitting headache <laughs> and, and I felt profoundly nauseous. So it's a film I'd like to have been able to watch but yeah. was physically yeah. unable to. <laughs> but, you know, if you have a, a strong constitution, you know, I'd, yeah, I'd recommend yeah. it. Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, if you like your kind of, uh, what's your name, William Eggleston photography and mm. stuff like that, it, it's gorgeous. Mm. Uh, look, It does have that 
feel of you know experience after experience is a very mm. kind of sensual film. I, you know, and I've, I'm seeing quite a lot of you. We saw Ginger and Rosa almost immediately afterwards, which mm. also has this great kind of intimate kind of sensual thing going on. Mm. But I don't know. Either these films work for you and grab you, or they don't. And this one, I was just slightly annoyed. The little girl actor is fantastic yeah. when she's being angry, especially. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's been tipped for an Oscar if they can get around the film's problems with the Screen Actors Guild. Because apparently they, they, part, they didn't pay some of the, the cast, who were willing to do it for oh, free, right. but that has caused all sorts of union problems yeah. subsequently. Oopsie. Yeah, yeah, it is one of those films where you wonder how many actual actors are in it, because mm. it does feature a It does look like somebody's walked into a particularly disreputable bar <laughs> at some stage. Like, who wants to be in a movie? <laughs> you, you and you. You're you know, you busy. <laughs> 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 Tell me then about Ginger and Rose, the new Sally Potter movie. Um, it's it's kind of yeah, it's a lovely thing. I mean, it's a lovely portrait of an intimate child. You, you basically have these uh, the, the opening shot is two pregnant women basically giving birth at the same time, and their kids grow up together mm. um, through the nineteen fifties. And there's loads of signifiers all over the screen saying it's nineteen fifties, from you know DA haircuts and bullets. Uh, Machines and uh, sitting in the bath to shrink your jeans, and, you know, and, you know, lots of mentions of the CND marches and whatever. And they are the bestest, bestest of friends. But um, Ginger's dad is a kind of would-be bohemian uh, radical. He he was jailed during the war for being a conscientious objector, and he's one of those kind of free-floating spirits whose free-floatingness leads him to you know a split up with his wife and b take. Rosa to bed mm. and essentially take her virginity at which point at which point you know the, the the little lovely family unit is completely destroyed it's it's one of those films I mean it's got you know great cast it's got was it Oliver Platt Timothy mm. Spall Annette mm. Benning, but they are they all play kind of friends of the family so they're not major part of it for me it, I don't know it it could have done what I think it was one of those films where it's kind of long attenuated scenes where something isn't being said mm. and you're just kind of going oh for God's sake <laughs> Wait, no, which is you know, true to the period and it's true to the story but I got the feeling I should have been enjoying the attenuation more rather mm. than being frustrated by it um, and it's partly because the dad whose name mm. was it Roland is just an insufferable prick yeah. <laughs> he's you know it, it, there's loads of stuff in that you know he believes the world war is ending or whatever mm. and he clearly wants to be this kind of free-floating guy and it doesn't seem to occur to him that he's leaving this trail of destruction behind it could mm. be read as a really deeply reactionary film it occurs <laughs> to me which is kind of anti your beat bohemian mm. which makes like, a change because well, yeah, it's always romanticized in these yeah, films yeah um, for me yeah, you know I'm not not fully sold on it. Mm. I don't, you know, and I can't really quite get to why. I haven't written it up yet. <laughs> well, it's funny. I mean, I found actually that the period dramas in this year's London Film Festival haven't really gripped me. They've all been problematic one mm. reason or another. I mean, I saw this very morning that we're recording this conversation, Hyde Park on Hudson, a lavish new American-British co-production about it's, it's, the time. It's speech. It is, well, and, and, and George is in it stuttering, uh, bless him, although played by a different actor, um, in which uh, a very a young Elizabeth and his, her husband meet FDR 
on the eve of war in America in order to convince him that America should come and fight the Nazis. And it's also a story about how Franklin Roosevelt was a terrible philanderer. Uh, we meet his cousin, um, who he likes on going into the countryside for long drives and then undoes his zip at the end of those drives uh, so she can help him relax. Um, and, and she thinks that she's the only special woman in his life other than um, his wife, who's played by uh, Olivia Coleman in a great performance. But she then subsequently finds out he's got loads of women on the side. Wow. And I actually, I mean, I don't know a lot about FDR. I didn't realise that he was such a... <laughs> a hound. A hound, indeed. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, it's a beautifully shot movie. Some of the best... Uh, shots of clouds and the sky I think I've seen on screen in a very long time to the extent you think are these CGI or real mm. because they're too perfect mm. and there is one shot that obviously is CGI in the movie when we see Bill Murray uh, swimming and they clearly aren't his real legs yeah. convincing yeah. but it's obvious that Bill Murray really doesn't have polio legs in real life right, and so right, that, right. Yeah. that obviously was a little bit of CGI but no it's I mean it's a lovely kind of merchant ivory film but has that British period drama problem that it's just a bit like taking Valium you know yeah. for an hour and a half yeah. you know it's, it's bound to make lots of, of money <laughs> yeah, it's this kind of heritage cinema thing mm. which I kind of find myself kicking against a lot it's either about Dukes and Earls or whatever or the Beatles yeah essentially yeah. I'm well, a, I mean, yeah, half the movie seems about like, oh, how funny it is that the Queen and King are eating hot dogs. I mean, one of the other films I saw, oh, Spike Island, that is set all during, well, during the, the run-up to the Stone Roses gig on Spike Island, ah. and you have never seen so many cultural signifiers dumped in one hmm. film over, you know, people quoting Stone Roses lyrics back hmm. to their English teacher. There's a character called Voodoo Ray. They refer to a girl as Sally Simmons Cinnamon and whatever. And I found myself like sort of just kind of toe curling, <laughs> piling up of uh, you know the signifiers of the time, one after mm. the other after the other. In there, there's a there's a good hour long, funny movie about a bunch mm. of people trying to get to Spike Island without tickets, and the lengths they go to and getting in and stuff like that. And that's all brilliant and really funny and entertaining but around it there's this mm. kind of clustering it's like somebody's got a big book of northern cliches uh, cli well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> northern coming of age cliches yeah. and kind of whomp, you can feel it kind of thudding down mm. at any given point it doesn't help that the all the boys are in a band called Shadowcaster who are clearly supposed to be good <laughs> and at one stage you hear their music and you mm. kind of go that's <laughs> yeah. all right, you know, um, and that's always been a problem with you know rock movies. Mm. Well, that's I mean I had the same problem actually with Good Vibrations, um, which is showing again at the festival on Friday the nineteenth at Odeon West End on the twenty-first Sunday at the Ritzy. And again on Saturday the 20th at the View Cinema. So it's obviously a film that they think people are going to lap right, up. Right. And it was well made. It's the story of Terry Hooley who ran a iconic record shop called Good Vibrations mm. in Belfast. And so it's set against the Troubles. But the thing is, while there is loads of archive footage of the IRA blowing um, things up, it never really properly impacts on the characters and so it almost seems irrelevant to a certain extent when surely, you know, even if you had to combine characters or add mm. characters, you know, in order to add various similitudes, sometimes you have to lie yeah. in order for, in order to talk about how the IRA did affect these people's lives and it never really kind of mm. comes into it. The music's terrific, mm. 
But I don't know. I just mm. again, it just didn't really grab me. I mean, I was curious about because they had that they had a documentary about the Undertones recently. I mean, the mm. Undertones famously didn't do any music about the Troubles. They, yeah. uh, and this is the reason they were Im- immensely popular in their own town, or whatever, mm. is they went straight to some kind of teenage heartland. Or whatever, and they're only one of, uh, one of their singles is vaguely yeah, about, yeah. You know, it's going to happen, happen, happen all the uh. time until you change your mind. Essentially, that's their song. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and needless to say, because um, their first and most famous record, perhaps, um, Teenage Kicks, was released initially by Terry Hooley, and the film yeah. depicts uh, that event where he refuses to take the £20,000 that various record labels want to buy the rights off him for, and instead he just wants 500 quid and a signed copy of some soul band that this <laughs> yeah. record company has also signed, and apparently he never even gets the photo. <laughs> And so they have an actor playing John Peel who comes to a, a punk gig in Ireland. And so, you know, it's all very nice, yeah. but it just never really grabs me. And for anyone also who has seen the fact that it has Dylan Moran in it, he is in literally one scene for 30 seconds. So I felt shortchanged about that too. <laughs> um, there's another, there's a great film in the London Film Festival with a music link actually called West of Memphis which is a ah, long yes. documentary yeah. two and a half hours or plus or something like that mm. which is about the West Memphis Three who yeah. became famous through two films uh, three. Paradise Lost three documentaries yeah. Paradise Lost Paradise Lost Two and Three <laughs> um, on HBO and for years and years and years different um, Henry Rollins and loads of other musicians have been trying to fundraise for this case where essentially three kids got railroaded because they looked a bit gothy in, yeah and uh, one special need so he gets browbeaten into yeah. confessing you know um, it, because, for what the authorities claimed at the time through some kind of weird hysteria and just the nature of the uh, time was a satanist killing of these three nine-year-old and they're eight or nine eight, yeah. yeah boys boys um it is a fantastic this is a fantastic mm. documentary and it uh really really quite difficult to watch him play there's mm. um a lot of forensic footage which i think there's slightly more yes. than like yes. comfortable with i agree of, de- um, of dead naked children yeah, yeah. I mean, there's footage also of a snapping turtle going at a Pig's testicles. Yes, in order to for one of those kind of CSI science montages yeah, where they yeah. show you what would happen. And yeah. again, it would have been better left to the imagination. Yeah. But you're not going to forget that in a hurry. But mm. it's, it's, um, it needs two and a half hours. Cause mm. A, because it's a complicated case that you're going through. But the bizarre twists and turns yeah. where the main guy who... Uh, we suspect. Yeah, I mean, the, the film fingers uh, yeah. a relative of one of the dead children. Mm. And he does the, the classic Oscar Wilde mistake of when after one of these benefit concerts uh, the Dixie Chicks uh, get sued by this guy for defamation of character and it makes it very clear if the film hadn't done otherwise that A, he was guilty and was making a complete fool of himself by taking these women to court because it actually makes him look very guilty when he's on the stand you know and that would be the only way he gets on the stand yeah Um, you know other twists and turns were the the campaign to free the West Memphis Three at one stage, they're hoping that the judge who has continually turned down a te- you know, pleas for a retrial, mm. they're hoping that he gets elected to be governor mm. so that he knows he's no longer in a position to do that kind of thing. And just the perversity of it. And the weird... I'm not going to explain how mm. it all happened and how it all played out, but there's a strange piece of legal jiggery-pokery yeah, yeah, at the end. Very strange. Which I think most people would 
jaw-dropping where they're innocent. Well, no, I mean, and that's the weird thing, that the film is two and a half hours long, but actually that's almost the most important... That is the most important aspect of it, this weird bit of American... The Ashford plea. plea, This bit of American um, law that... um, is incredibly important to the fate of these three innocent uh, men mm. who have been in jail for 18 years, one of them presumably on death row for 18 years. That's never quite articulated. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, it never actually, you need some kind of legal expert who knows how to talk yeah. uh, non legalese to actually explain how this bit of, of legal yeah. jargon works. And that is yeah. missing. Right. The same way that at the beginning, I guess particularly for American viewers, they assume that everyone has three, seen the three HBO movies yeah. because I felt the initial trial was actually a little bit skated over. They kind of got mm. away, got it, um, the original case over and done within the first 15 minutes, which I thought was a bit of a shame. I'd have liked to have seen more in it. I'd have oh. liked to have seen the three accused in trial, you know, yeah. in the dock the first time around. Yeah, I mean, it's okay. okay. I mean, it's a tough call. What mm. you leave in and what yeah. you take out. There's also a strange piece of business where clearly the second of the Paradise Lost movies spent a lot of time fingering the, the wrong, wrong person for exactly the same reason the three kids were arrested in the first place just because he's to quote Marge Gunderson funny looking well you know in this case he's got you know white trash mullet yeah exactly. rather than you know your gothy haircut mm. but um yeah I mean loads in there to chew on it's a fantastic you know a, and, and weirdly, the reason the film exists was after one of these benefit concerts with Johnny Depp and the Dixie Chicks yeah. and, and Henry Rollins, uh, filmmaker Peter Jackson found out about mm. it. And so in between his first Lord of the Rings trilogy and his second, mm. he obviously has spent yeah. millions of dollars hiring new private detectives yeah. and new forensic experts to investigate the case. And this is, this is a wingnut film and it's produced by mm. Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh and one of the West Memphis Three. So yeah. it's a bit partial. But, 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 you know. But from the right point of view, I think. Mm. <laughs> and it does, um, it is fairly even-handed. You know, it still lets big one screen... They clearly still believe that West Memphis Three are in the sun. It's got all the relevant people they've managed to actually talk to. Mm. So, yeah, really good, solid piece of work. Yes, so West of Memphis, and again, I'll be very surprised if that doesn't get a wide release in the near future. Yes, indeed. Any other documentaries you saw? Um, there's a fantastic one about Ginger Baker called Beware of Mr. Baker, where in the first about five minutes of the film, Ginger Baker, who is now a old grumpy nasty man as opposed to being the nasty man he was throughout most of his life <laughs> um, smacks the, uh, the, the the documentary maker in the face with a cane and break, down there breaks his nose which kind of <laughs> there's not enough of that <laughs> but um, Ginger Baker just leads this absolutely bizarre he seems to hate everybody surrounding mm. him he's gone through four wives I think and counting um, he's you know obviously a magnificent drama obviously Huge amounts of drug problems mm. throughout his entire life. Huge amounts of money problems. He had an obsession mm. with polo ponies, which seems to be more expensive than heroin and more disastrous for him. Mm. But he's gone through life. You know, he was in uh, Cream and Blind mm. Faith and loads of fantastic uh, London musicians. He worked with Fela Kuti in South Africa. So there's mm. incredible... A free-flowing, strange life this man has led, mm. all the while being distinctly unpleasant, <laughs> to, which makes him an interesting uh, figure. And it's another, you know, one of the things I've noticed about most of the documentaries in this thing, including Two Three Seven, is or whatever, is if you don't have footage of stuff these days, and there's a lot of footage, it's amazing of pretty much every incident in um, Ginger Baker's life. Mm. 
they they go straight for the animation rather than um, <laughs> Ho- hopefully not in that Korean news channel style. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's you know it's a strange piece of cake because a few years ago if somebody was telling a story and didn't have footage they would just put the camera on somebody's face mm. and say oh well we don't have the footage these days and then the, the, the Baker documentary it's it's quite nice it's kind of rough hewn kind of charcoal mm. actiony. Cut-out animation, kind cool. of done over various stories, um, in for no good reason. So they give a game try of trying to reanimate mm. some of Ralph Steadman's cartoons. Nice. One of the ideas in Room 237 turns up as an animation. This just seems to be the wave of yeah. you know, how you do documentary yeah. these days. Well, I mean, a, a film that I'm looking forward to and we'll be talking about in the next of these shows at 11 o'clock on Thursday morning is uh, the new Monty Python movie, uh, A Liar's Autobiography. Uh, oh, you've seen it. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. tell me more. <laughs> I saw it a few months back. It's a fantastic piece. Of, it's, it's a lovely, charming, but completely free. For, if you want to find out about Graham Chapman's life, this is probably not the best place <laughs> to go to. In that the who, what, where and when is mm. entirely missing. But you just kind of drift through. Essentially, Graham Chapman... Um, recorded an audiobook of his mm. memoir, his biography, Elias' autobiography. They mm. then gave that, or uh, the tapes of his voice, to 14 different animation studios <laughs> um, who kind of go through. So you've got mixes, you've got uh, puppet, puppet stop animation, you've got mm. kind of flat, kind of computer 3D animation, uh, you've got. 3D animation. You've got that old school, really lovely animation I used to remember from, you know, Film Board of Canada movies, mm. whereby you paint on glass and smear the paint and cover. And that's nice. used for an amazing Delirium Tremens sequence. But it's, okay. um, it's a fascinating. He's kind of the anti Kenneth Williams mm. in that he was uh, homosexual, but didn't care about it. It was yeah. really yeah. comfortable. And um, he didn't seem to have any problems with his status, which is mm. what Kenneth Williams is obsessed, he was obsessed with his sexuality and status. And neither mm. of those problems afflicted Graham Chapman. Mm. I mean, Graham Chapman's main problem was that he was a bugger for the bottle, as the uh, <laughs> Monty Python song goes. And the other Pythons are in it. So presumably they took yes. him reading the talking book and then got no. the other pythons to yes. to perform and, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, although one of them's missing I've heard yeah Eric Idle's missing interesting um, Carol Cleveland also turns up and mm. in, in a bizarre cameo you've got Cameron Diaz does the voice of Sigmund Freud of and course it's, it's, <laughs> who else <laughs> it's a lovely it's a charming thing it's in pointless 3D which I mm. I kind of well um, it isn't 3D generally well, pointless <laughs> but this was one of those cases where I'm going and why? Yeah, <laughs> why yeah, is yeah, this, yeah. you know? Huh. But it's, uh, yeah, lovely piece of work. Cool. Well, Elias' autobiography is showing tonight at 9pm in the Empire Cinema in Leicester Square. And then there's a documentary about Graham Chapman showing at the NFT at 8.45 on Thursday. When the festival began with animation, the opening night film was Frankenweenie yeah. that's getting a full release in a couple of weeks, uh, next week. Mm-hmm. And it just didn't grab me. I mean, you were talking about um, one of the music films earlier, mm. feeling like an hour-long film that had been unnecessarily right. extended to feature length. And this, I think Tim Burton did a perfect job of Frank and Weenie <laughs> in 1984 <laughs> and remaking it as a cartoon in right. 2012. He hasn't really added anything. In fact, the hour of padding seems almost entirely stolen from Gremlins 2. <laughs> so it just seems a slightly no. pointless exercise I mean, you know like he's completely yeah. run out of ideas I really, you know, I really enjoyed it for what it was it mm. is you know 
during the film festival, you do tend to see... I went on the same day as I saw Frank and Weenie, I saw Michael Haneke's new one, Amour, which is, just features, you know, an old lady dying in an apartment by herself in a nice <laughs> claustrophobic city. So on those, on those terms, mm. I saw Frank and Weenie and loved it because it was gorgeous looking mm. and fun and kind of light and free. And it's features and pointless 3D. <laughs> yeah, and it pointless 3D. And, you know, lots of... Uh, Nods to Universal and Hammer mm. movies and stuff like this, and I don't know because I wasn't expecting much, and because I, you know, it, it kind of hit my G spots as it mm. were. Mm. I kind of, I'll, I'll give it a free pass, mm. you know. Um, well, like you said, at the London Film Festival, you see loads of films that you wouldn't see elsewhere. I yeah. mean, there's there's always at least one foreign animated film that will never be screened again in this yeah. country, which yeah. in this case was uh, Ernest and Celestine, which is showing on Sunday the 21st at 3.30 in the Odeon West End, which is a lovely French cartoon set mm-hmm. in a world run by um, bears and mice and uh, metropolis style the bears live in the world and the mice live in underground yeah. city and never the twain shall meet and it's about a friendship between a bear and a mouse and it was absolutely lovely you know and I would highly recommend it I was gutted I missed this because I just saw a few stills of it and I just thought oh that's yeah. and it's starting to reproduce uh, it's a well known book in France Bon Dessiné series I yeah, think. yeah. They've, 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 it looks like they've gone all out to try and recapture a rather lovely drawing style which mm. is always one of those things I, I really appreciate in animators mm. if you try and go for not the easy route but the, you know try and approximate somebody else's style is a tricky thing to do and it yeah. looks lovely I mean there's um I saw quite a large chunk, unfortunately, before the DVD broke down, of uh, Wolf Children, which is a lovely anime playing that, which, and that's just a beautiful thing to look at. And a lot of the children's strand tends to be, mm. on, on shows like this, tends to be forgotten about or whatever, but they do tend to pick up certain amazing, you know, things you wouldn't see elsewhere. Indeed. Cool. Thank you very much. <laughs> To book tickets for films that we've discussed in this morning's show, please go to www.bfi.org.uk stroke LFF. For more information about Mark Stafford's work, please go to his website www.hocus-baloney.com and I'd like to thank the Cartoon Museum for letting me record my discussion of film screening at the London Film Festival with Mark in their Family Activity Centre at 35 Little Russell Street, London, WC1A 2HH. You can find more information about the Cartoon Museum at cartoonmuseum.org. Mark and I both write film reviews for Electric Sheep magazine, and you can find them at Electric Sheep magazine.com. In the next hour-long special looking at this year's London Film Festival, I'll be discussing such movies as Reality, the new film by the Italian director of Gamora, hilarious new sci-fi comedy Robot and Frank with Frank Langella and Liv Tyler, restored German silent movie The Loves of Pharaoh, the new Thomas Winterberg movie The Hunt, and Korean portmanteau movie The Doomsday Book. Please tune in again at 11am on Thursday morning the 18th of October. You can hear a podcast of today's show and a variety of previous podcasts where I'm talking to directors, actors and writers of cult cinema on my blog www.panelborders.wordpress.com. This extended episode of I'm Ready for My Close-Up was recorded, introduced and edited by Alex Fitch and is a Panel Borders production. Thanks for listening.